Let's just pray. Father, we uh, pray even as I speak, Lord, that it be your spirit who would teach us. It be your words that will instruct us. Uh, Father, we need to learn. We want to learn. We want to know more about your son, more from your word. And so, Lord, this time that you give us, Lord, keep us away from distraction. Keep us, Lord, from anything that would take away uh, from hearing your still small voice. We thank you. We love you in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. There's this, uh, they say one of the top ten charges against Christianity or against church is the church of hypocrisy. Uh, particularly three charges. One, they say, is that they are sinners just like us. You know, they, they sin. And second, that they are judgmental. They, they, they say that they are the only ones who have the truth. And the third is that they are hypocritical. They rare, rarely live up to the truth they say they possess. And I want to say often we are guilty as charged. But it might be good for us to just look into it a little deeper before we delve into our word, right? I mean, first, they are sinners. And, and uh, I think it was Ossie Sproul who, who said it really well. He, he said, yes, the church is full of sinners, and I know of no other organization where the criteria for joining is that you be a sinner who's confessed his sins. So being a sinner is, you know, yeah, we understand that. And uh, we recognize that we are dust and that apart from Christ, we crumble in all areas. And then, and then this charge that we are hypocrites. You see, a hypocrite is someone who claims to have these moral standards, but their actions are consistently opposite to what they claim. They have this moral standard, but they don't live up to it. But I want to say there's a difference between being a, being a sinner and being a hypocrite. You see, all hypocrites may be sinners, but not all sinners are hypocrites. All hypocrites may be sinners, but not all sinners are hypocrites. Let me, let me explain that. You see, if I were to say I'm a Christian and I sin, that makes me somebody who sinned. But if I say, no, I don't sin... I don't have that sin, though I sin. That makes me a hypocrite. And then when I turn around and point fingers to someone else who's doing that sin, then I'm being judgmental. Uh, you see, so w when you put it all together, we ask, like, why bother with church? Like, you know, what do I do? Why bother with church? Why do I even concern myself if this is true? For firstly, it is like saying I won't go to the hospital because it's full of sick, sick people, right? Because we've acknowledged that church is sinners saved by grace. 
and that we come together not because we are perfect, but we come to a perfect God. But the second that really encourages me is that Jesus Christ, he is the builder of the church. He's the one who is building. He's the one who's changing. He's the one who's conforming. And I'd rather not, I'd rather be here than anywhere else. This is the place I want to be. This is the place because the Lord is working, working in each one of our lives. And the third part that really connects with the passage is that we humans are no different. I mean, we were the same in the first century. In the first century, they were hypocrites. The first century, they were sinners. The first century, they, they, you know, they were in the church. And we've been looking at the Corinthian uh, church. And today we are the fifth chapter. It reminds us again and again and again and again, even at those times, they had similar problems. And so what do, we, what do we learn from that? How do I, what do I apply from that. So if you will turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we start to look at some of these questions that were raised and ask ourselves what, what is it that we can learn uh, from this chapter. Now this chapter opens with a shocking sin. And it's an inst- instruction on how church needs to handle this sin. You see, and our main lesson for today is let's put away sin before sin puts us out. That's the main thing, right? Let's put away sin before sin puts us out. That'll be the nail that I'll pound. That'll be the main point I want us to come back to again and again. If there's one thing that we'll take away, the one thing is this. Let's put away sin before sin puts us out. All right? And so, uh, because the desire for us as a church is from Acts, uh, sorry, Philippians 5.27, which says that, that Christ will present the church to himself in splendor, with, um, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we be made holy and, and, and without blemish. That's our desire. When we see sin in us, when we see that we have, you know, we, we have this tendency, our desire is not to run away and hide in that, but to come back to the place and ask God, change us. And we see in 1 Corinthians 5, one of the ways that sin can be addressed. Now, this chapter can be divided into three parts. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, I want to call it Paul's instruction. Paul's instruction. And then verse 6 to 8, Paul's illustration. And then verses 9 to 13 is Paul's insistence. So you have his instruction, you have his illustration, and then you have his insistence. So let me read to you verses 1 to 5 from chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought, Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him 
who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body and present in spirit and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This chapter begins with uh, a shocking sin that shocked the world but didn't shock the church. It didn't shock the church. Now think about it. And it says, you know, how is it that sin can lose its shock value? Why is it that that we 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 read this and or why is it that they didn't feel the shock as it should? I think one is I think we we tend to mislabel sin as culturally relevant. We we start to say, well, you know, it used to be it used to be not okay before, but it's okay now. Things have changed. We are culture. We are different culture. Or it, it wasn't okay in that country, but it's okay now here in this country. Or you know whatever our mislabeling may be that reduces the shock value. It could be that. Or it could be that we justify our weakness. We just say, well, that's who I am. I, you know, I can't help it. I try, but that's, that's who I am. We justify our weakness. Or we tolerate, or we confuse tolerance with grace. We think that, you know, if the person is sinning, we just tolerate. We, that's okay, let go. I mean, that's okay. You know, we understand. And, and that tolerance is Grace is the confusion that we have. But as we go through this, you'll realize tolerance and grace are opposites. They're not the same. The way grace is presented to us in the Bible is very different. And one thing that we want to come back to is don't be fooled. If you don't put sin out, sin will put you out. And, and the approach to sin is has to be urgent. And that's what Paul does in, in verse 3 with this urgency where Paul says, for though absent in the body and present in spirit, and if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. You see, four times, four times he talks about this judging of this person. In verse 2, verse 5, verse 7, verse 13, is remove the man. There's this judgment that needs to come in the house of God and Paul is saying this is urgent. If you don't put sin out, sin will put you out. We need to be urgent about it. You see, what he's doing here is what we would call excommunication, right? There's this judgment on on the person who's been sinning. Now, the first time we hear about excommunication or the judgment in a church on a person is in Matthew eighteen. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew 18 because it's, it's good to just go through quickly what I want to call the four-step escalation process. The four-step escalation process. So verse 18, I'm going to read from verse 15. Okay, that's the first step. 
If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. So the first thing that you do when somebody sins against you, you have a problem with somebody, is you go to that person, brother or sister, and speak to that person one-on-one. That's your first step. And on the second step, if he doesn't listen to you, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother, uh, verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And, and if you compare with other verses and passages, you, would, you, might, you can see that this could be going with the elders. So the first time you've gone alone, met with this person, the, it didn't work out. And the next time you go, so that the word would be established, you go with two or three witnesses. That's your second step. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses, that's the third step. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you a Gentile or like an outsider. That's the excommunication, the four steps. Right? So we we saw that, uh, we see that in in chapter 18 of Matthew. But coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, why I took you there is because out here, Paul is going directly to the last step. He is not going through this first of those three steps. He goes directly to the last step. He says, put him out. It's already affected the church. It's impacted the church. It is public knowledge, and Paul is urgent. He's saying, listen, you need to get to that last step, you need to put him out. There's an urgency in the way he says, and see what does he do in verse 4, and it says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this again he says, so one, you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present, so that means he's in agreement with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, so you have assembled in the power and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this is the same as in verse eight, in chapter 18 where it says where two or three are gathered together, I'm in your name. That's about the discipline part, that the Lord Jesus Christ is there. Uh, in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Lord Jesus, verse 5, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, there's this discipline that the church does, but the reason and the result is always that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's always the goal of discipline. That's always the goal of discipline, that there'd be restoration. I want us to understand, therefore, that discipline is an act of grace, not tolerance, but discipline. Discipline is the act of grace, and, and we do it in grace. In, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, If anyone be overtaken in fault, you who are spiritual, with gentleness, restore him with the spirit of gentleness, it says. So, so discipline is for restoration. Discipline is an act of grace, and it's done in grace. It's the discipline is the grace of confrontation. You see, what Grace is saying is, I don't want to leave this brother, this sister in sin. I want to go and and get them back. That is what Grace is. 
You see, because we sin so much, sometimes the, the, the volume of the sin is so loud that we forget we're not able to listen to the still small voice and I will need my brother and my sister to come along and, and drag me out from that pit. And so grace is not tolerating me in sin, but grace is coming to take me out, pull me out. So that even if it be, sin must be purged and that persistent sinner be disciplined. It's grace, discipline is grace that increases in volume. There's a, you know, you saw the escalation process. That we, 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 we um, try by all means to bring restoration because if we don't put sin away, uh, sin will put us away. But, you know, when you talk about discipline, it, it doesn't sit well, well with us, right? I mean, it's against uh, our modern sensibilities of what Christian faith ought to be. It doesn't sit with us. I, I uh, heard this story some time ago about this little girl, maybe seven, eight years old or something, and she comes to her teacher and says, Miss Carter, my dad told me, I, I don't want to scare you or anything, but my dad told me that if my grades don't go up, someone's going to get hurt, and I hope, don't tell me later, I didn't warn you. You see, we, we always think discipline was some, someone else, isn't it? We, we don't like it when it's turned around to us. And what I see here is that discipline is actually an act of grace. That if, if I'm in the danger of being hit by a truck, there's a brother or sister who puts himself or herself in harm's way to get me out. Because it's harm's way. Because when you try to discipline, there's always be accusation. You're always called hypocritical. Because how dare you judge me when there's sin in your life? So we don't judge because we are sinless. We, we don't judge because we are perfect. But we are called here again and again. We'll see again and again. We are called to judge. We are called to judge. And so I, I want to ask these questions, right? I mean, like, do we, do we, do we, do we practice uh, discipline in this post-church, post-truth, post-Christian era? And, I, and I'm saying that it's God's timeless command. And it's applicable to us. You see, the, 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 the danger that we have, not danger, that's the wrong word, but the, the reason I guess some churches don't apply this is because each of us treat churches like a monopoly game, right? We have this get-out-of-jail-free card. If you have a problem at one church, then you go to another church. And so, you know, for fear that person is going to go, we, we, we go slack on the discipline. And yet, if we recognize discipline as an act of grace, as things that are needed, as a safeguard, because if you don't put out sin, sin will put us out. And discipline becomes hard because, you know, we, we, 
it requires humility to accept that. And see what happened here in verse 2, it says that, that you become puffed up, you become arrogant, you haven't mourned. There's this hardness, sin can cause that. And so practicing discipline sometimes is difficult, but yet the churches are commanded to do that. And then there's other question that comes up is like, I thought we're not supposed to judge, right? One of the, one of the verses that one of the verses that we throw out is what? One of the most commonly verses is what? Matthew 7, 1, do not be judged lest you be judged, right? Like, who are you to judge me? Why are you judging me? If you read that chapter in Matthew 7, you'll see that it's, it's, the context is against hypocritical judgment. That is, you know, if I don't want to be judged, but I'm going to judge someone else. And that is what the Lord Jesus is saying shouldn't happen. Because if you even read in Romans chapter 12, it says, uh, chapter, sorry, chapter 2, it says there that who are you? You judge, you do the same thing and you judge someone else. And that is not something that you ought to do. That is being hypocritical. Well, that doesn't mean that you, you cannot judge. We, you know, if you don't judge before you cross the road, you'll get hit by the truck. We do that. We, 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 we judge. We look both sides. And we judge if it's safe to cross or not. So what are we called to judge? We're called to judge what God calls sin. If God has called something sin, then I should judge that in my life and as an act of grace in the life of my brother and my sister. And that is what the community is all about. Let me explain that. I'm, I'm going to let you into two secrets, all right? So one, one is when I was in Sunday school, I've actually participated in a singing competition. I thought I'd win, but I didn't. The second is I was actually asked to judge in a singing competition. And I said no, <laughs> because I had no idea how to judge. Well, that's the point. We can't judge what we don't know, but we can judge what we do know. And we call to judge. You read this chapter, we are asked to judge. Not with the uh, the harshness of the judgment that we, are, we tend to, but with gentleness. But we have to judge. And, and this question where, you know, it says here that, uh, verse 5, you, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? Yeah, well, it's a hard passage, and, uh, you know, there are many who try to explain what it is. Uh, uh, Paul actually gives two other instances, but not exactly in the same way here. One is in First Timothy chapter one verse twenty, where where he 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 puts Hymenius and Alexander over to the devil, so that they'd be saved. And then later in First Corinthians chapter eleven, there's this passage where where the Corinthian church, because they did not partake of the uh, the Lord's supper worthily, some of them had died prematurely. There was a judgment upon them. It doesn't mean that they lost the salvation, but it says here that, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And how do we practice that today? 
And why is it that excommunication is the extreme means of discipline? You see, because... Um, let me, let me read to you a quote from Barclay. He says, Paul was turning the man over to live in the sphere of Satan's authority, the world, from the sphere of the Spirit's authority, the church. You see, what, what has been said here is that if the person wants to, ex- wants to sin, insistent on sin, let them then experience that sin outside of the protective benefit found in the church. In Acts 20 and Hebrews 13, we see this, this, this protective benefit within the church so that they would experience that. So they would, they would uh, get the effects of sin just like somebody who does not know God. It's like being put into that storm and you, you know that that's not the place to be, but you want to come running back to where there's protection. Because the end goal is always restoration. And so when, when, uh, when the person recognizes the loss, uh, the tremendous loss, the fellowship, the protective protection that they can be found in the community, they will recognize that that is not the place they want to be. They want to come back. Let me read to you two other quotes. One is from Wiersbe. Church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it's a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. It's done in grace. It's done for grace. The second quote says, in this therapeutic age when the church is often looked upon more as a support group than a holy temple, church, becomes a refuse, church members refuse to discipline members and continue to embrace sinning saints even when it is clear that they have no intention of repenting of their sins and even when they publicly persist in their sinful ways. You see, when we, when we think about a church as just a time of social get-together and as a fellowship, apart from the spiritual merit that a church gives, then we take it away. We, we declaw, as it were, the effects of, or the effectiveness of the church. Church discipline is a spiritual, uh, of sp- a spiritual need that keeps us in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the right path. And then Paul continues to explain in verse 6 to 8, he gives us an illustration. Uh, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump so that you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. What is happening here? What's the illustration? You see, if you take leaven or the yeast, if you put a little bit in the dough, the whole yeast gets inoculated. The whole yeast gets puffed up, and that's the idea. But what's been referenced here is the Passover and the feast. Now, 
If you'll remember in Acts 12, sorry, in uh, Exodus 12, the Israelites, uh, when they partook of the, of the feast of the Passover, the lamb was slain, the blood was put on the doorpost, and the angel of death would pass by. And so they were rescued because of the blood that was shed. And the very next day was this feast of the unleavened bread. And what they had to do and what the Jews would do is to take away every trace of leaven, or every trace of yeast, or anything that would inoculate the, the dough, take it all away. So they would practice the, the new life without the old leaven, without the, the picture of what sin is. That is what this feast of the unleavened bread uh, is is uh, picturizes. And what Paul is saying here is that Christ is our Passover. We are on the right side of Passover. We are on that side of Passover where the Christ has already been offered as our Passover. We've been, we've been rescued. And because we've been rescued, let, our, let us live a life which is purged of leaven, which is, which is purged and removed of sin. That we can celebrate this feast in that manner. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, or the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then he goes on from verse 9 to verse 13. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to uh, be out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of, and then he lists six things, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, idolatry, reviler, drunkenness, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do with judging outsiders, it is, not those in, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's strong words. This is a strong chapter of discipline, that we must be discerning any person who has the name of brother or sister. As a church, we are called to judge. Let me quickly go through those list of six. One is the immoral person, any one who indulges in sex outside of marriage. And the word there is pornos, from which we get the word pornography. Then you have the covetous, showing a great desire to possess something that doesn't belong to you. You know, there's this, there's this driving force to need to get what someone else has and to have better. Achan, he, he was covetous. His covetousness actually re- resulted in the defeat of Israel, the nation of Israel, when Joshua went to fight against, Joshua and the people of Israel went to fight against Ai because of one person's covetous sin, the whole nation Um, was defeated. The idolater, worshiper of false god, and and I said there are two things, at least, you know, we, we keep talking about what idols are, but at least two things that come to mind. One is anything that comes that prevents you from from praising your God, that's your idol. Anything that comes, anything that casts a shadow 
on, on your praise to God is your idol. Uh, be a person, be a practice, be a conviction, be a mindset, be an excuse, whatever it be. If that comes in the way of you praising your God, then that's an idol. Second, we're talking about this this morning too, about anxiety and how that plays into being an idol. Because, you see, when you're anxious with something, your mind is full of that, right? In Psalm 1, it talks about the blessed man who meditates on God's word day and night. And yet, when you're anxious about something, you are meditating on that. Your meditation is on the thing that that's causing you that anxiety and that becomes your idol because instead of meditating on God and his promises, you're meditating now, you're filled, your mind is filled with something else. And so what causes your concern to that extent can then be your idol. Then you have the railer or the reviler, the evil speakers, that is, the ones who are abusive, the, the blasphemer, the one who speaks evil against God's word. Then you have the drunkard, the excessive, the intoxicated, the ones who are unable to control their physical drives. Then the swindler, the extortioner, the robber, the, and it's not always money or property, but the one who, who robs. And what are we to do? To purge the evil person from among you. This chapter is tough, but what it's asking us to do is to have a high view of God and a low view of sin. No sin should be accommodated. And that if we don't put sin out, sin will put us out. And that we must treat sin as an affront against God. That we, uh, unless we mourn over our sin, that's verse 2. It says, rather you ought to have mourned, but you haven't mourned. Because if you don't mourn over your sin, you cannot modify your sin. You cannot put it to death. If you don't treat it as a spiritual cancer, it will grow. What happened here is that the sin has grown big and bold that it has prevented them to have any more shock value. What begins small will grow up big. And that we need to be narrow-minded about sin. Jesus Christ was narrow-minded about sin, that he died on the cross to, to get that uh, taken care of. You see, the world demands broad-mindedness in morals and spirit spirituality, but narrow-mindedness in everything else. Think about this. If you go to a doctor who's not narrow-minded about the medicines that he's going to give to you, you have a problem. Think about it. If the driver is not narrow-minded about where he's going to drive, which side of the street is going to drive, we have a problem. If the, if the chemist is not narrow-minded about what uh, chemicals they're going to mix, you'd have a problem. We, we are narrow-minded about everything else. Well, we have to be narrow-minded about sin that we will not tolerate sin, however small it is. Because if we have the discipline of treating sin in our own lives, if we were to say, no, that little sin, that bud of a sin, will, I will not tolerate in my life, it will not have to escalate to a place where the community will have to come alongside and say, Let, let's help in grace through discipline to deal with it. Because sin is like leaven, it will grow. 
It's like cancer. It will, it will, it will, it will destroy. If we don't put out sin, sin will put us out. There's a story about this uh, farmer who went out to uh, to this farmer's market, and he had uh, cottage cheese and butter to sell. And he forgot to take two ladles or two scoops. He just had one. So he said, okay, I'm going to just use the same for the cottage cheese and for the butter. And very soon, he didn't know which was which. And I think that probably explains where we are. Sometimes if we don't differentiate about, if we're not very particular about separating ourselves from sin to holiness, no wonder the world looks at us and says we are hypocrites. We, we, we have not made the difference. We have not been particular about how we treat sin. You see, the, truly, really, the world would be the one who are hypocritical because they want broad-mindedness in spirituality but narrow-mindedness in every other aspect of their life. And I, 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 I get that. But then when the finger starts pointing to us, we recognize that we have been very broad-minded about our sins. We've been, we have used the word grace and intolerance for ourselves for sin. No wonder the world is unable to see the difference. And if you don't put sin out, it'll put us out. If, it doesn't, if you don't put sin out in, in ourselves as individuals, if we stop making excuse for anything, I'm not going to compromise on this at all. But I'm going to deal with sin in any form. We'll be the ones who will be a purged individual, a purged Christian, and a purged church. Spotless and blemishless. So that we would be presented in that splendor. That as the world looks at us, we'll realize that, yes, here is a group of people who are, who are so narrow-minded on sin and broad-minded on the sinner because we want, to, we want grace. We, want, we will use grace. We want restoration. But we'll be hard on, on sin. Father God, we pray. That that would be true of us, Lord. That even as Paul, he was urgent in the way that he wanted the Corinthian church to deal with sin. And we pray, Lord, that that sin in us, that idol in us, the the uh, the um, uh, all the list that we have, we know it's not exhaustive, but. The reviling, where it be, whether the robbery, whether in all of those lists that, that, that there is, Lord, that we would be very, very, very mindful that nothing of that would ever come between you and us, and that our praise to you would be in its power and its might, even as this song that we sang. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Teach my heart 
to sing that melodious song. And Lord, that your grace would be like a fetter that would tie us down. And that we will treat sin just as you treated, treated sin on the cross, that your son treated on the cross, would it be, Lord, that we would do that? We would modify it. We will not, we will not put up with it. That our lives would be lived in a, in a way that brings you glory indeed. We thank you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've been to us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen.